Hello everyone, and welcome to the Quorum Podcast. This is where academic medicine meets remote, austere, and resource-limited areas. So, welcome back to the program. This is Averical Kelly. This week, I am talking with Zach Andrews. Zach, you're a soft medic. You're an active-duty medic. You're stationed in Hawaii, and your job is human remains retrievals. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing. It is well. Well, thanks, Abrick. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. So um, that's right. I, I am a special operations medic in the uh, United States military, and I'm out here at Hawaii, and I work for the um, Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, and uh, we have a uh, humanitarian role. And we go to all the austere locations for remains recoveries from um, our our charters from World War II on. So that can go all the way from uh, the Pacific, which is my my main focus, uh, being out here in Hawaii. But we have teams that go all over Europe and about anywhere you can uh, you can try to imagine in the world where we fought and try to uh, recover remains. So, what countries have you been to so far? So the I, I've only been to two, and I'm kind of stuck in those two with my luck of the draw. But uh, <laughs> you know, good good countries uh, nonetheless. But Laos and Malaysia is, is where I've been to. Uh, what does a normal deployment look like? Describe your day to day on on a, on a normal deployment. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I'll start, the timeline really starts before we, we go out the, the door. You know, there's, of course, um, planning and investigation for the mission and exactly what we want to go do as a, as a whole team in its entirety. Um, and, and that's really done by other people. So I'll, I'll kind of stick with the medicine because I think that's where people are going to be you know, most interested with. And so Mm -hmm. we start with, um, once our team roster gets built and uh, most of this is internal, some of this is, is external. And and when we build the real big teams, a lot of it's external. I mean, we can, we can go with a hundred, uh, augmentees from different units around the military and, um, you know, and so medically we start to cover quite a bit. And part of those augmentees will be other we call independent providers. So they'll be SOCOMs or, or special operations medics or 18 deltas. Uh, but most commonly, they'll be Air Force uh, independent duty medical technicians or Navy independent duty corpsmen. And um, they'll kind of help us as the the organic medic, as we call it, and, and they'll kind of cover down on a team. But we go through everyone and we do we do very robust health checks on everybody you know where we go the the healthcare systems are are usually not going to match up to 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 where we came from <laughs> no doubt and then the evac times can be extreme i mean they can be 24 to 48 hours um to to get them to a you know hospital in that region that, you know, really meets the standards we need it to for, for what they need. And so we do a pretty big deep dive on that and just trying to make sure, you know, that there's something in their past history that's not a red flag to us, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it can be something as simple as, um, you know, we see somebody has a hernia that's that's not been operated on. You know, it's okay, well, we probably don't 
don't want that out there, you know, digging and possibly exacerbating that. Mm. Um, and so that that's a big deep dive that we do and um, can take can take quite a bit of time depending how big the teams are. Uh, we do smaller teams, our investigation teams, and they're 10 people, but they'll usually go out with a couple recovery teams, which can be, you know, 30, 40 people a team. Mm. Um, and, and when you add, uh, I think back in the day before – Prior to COVID, we had, uh, you know, four or five of those teams go out at once so that the missions can get quite large. Um, and then what we do on our side is we we will then uh, pack out. We pack out everything. We, we diligently go through all the kits. We, you know, do our pre-mission checks and inspections and make sure that, you know, everything that – we do have is is good to go for the augmentees that are coming in and uh, that that seems kind of a, a place where people gloss over of you know packing out seems the more more boring piece but uh you know the the quality of medicine that can be done in an emergency uh, a lot of times falls back on how organized you have something packed and laid out and systematic and things like that and so um, i spend a good deal of my time to make sure that it, it makes sense it's clearly labeled it's where it should be it doesn't move it survives the you know flight over there on you know military transport or civilian mm. air and that way from us as, as soon as we get there it's really set up your your station as you know, it should be expeditious, uh, you know, so it should only take a few minutes to set up and, and good to start uh, receiving uh, patients in case, you know, worse, worse comes to worse. Um, so that's that's really the, the, the pre-mission. We get our augmentees. We kind of bring them into the fold and, you know, talk to them about our, our policies and how we run because it's, it's going to be different from uh, how they run their, in their unit. And then we, uh, we, we push out. And, you know, my, my goal on these missions, I tell everybody, is to not be a medic. You know, that's that's really what I tell everyone. I don't want to do anything medical. Um, <laughs> you know, because, yeah. again, the environment to do medical things is not the greatest. So you have up to 100 soldiers deployed, and you're the only medics. That's almost three companies worth of soldiers, and you're the only medic? So they're for the teams for about you know those RT teams of about every thirty. We will have an augmentee uh, medic mm. that's with them, an IDMT. But overall, if something happens within theater, if if you're the organic medic, you're you're responsible. You're you're probably going to move and respond and take care of um, the situation as it happens. Um, they're going to have to start dealing with what's on hand first if it's one of theirs. But they need to be contacting you. And then, you know, if it's anything serious, you, you got to start shifting, shifting forces and trying to get over to them and then start coordinating for uh, evacuation and, you know, mm. letting everyone know what's what's going on. So you are working out of an improvised clinic. Are you are you palletizing medical equipment or are you is a vehicle mounted? Is this a rucksack mounted or what, what are you yeah. working out of? Yeah, good. Good question. It, it can be all the above. Um, it really depends on your mission. All these places are different places. They all have different um, aspects to that mission. And sometimes with the mission, um, you know, that that last mission, it, it 
changed multiple times within there where I was doing rucksack medicine. Uh, at one point, I had a, a small uh, rotary wing aircraft that was it, you know, it could hold about four people, and I could keep a little bit more kit in there. Uh, I set up a clinic in my hotel room if I have one. Um, if we're in tents, I usually have a, a space in a in you know set up outside. Try to get an overhang or something built with a tarp and set up a clinic out there. Um, really, it's just it it really depends. If you're on a recovery team, typically it's a, a bit more traditional, and you you set up an aid station, if you will, out uh, where your recovery team's at. Um, but everything gets there through. Uh, Usually palletization in, uh, you know, for military aircraft, but like this trip to Malaysia, everything had to, um, had to go civilian air. And so I had to pack in a way that met, uh, requirements for weight and had to do all my notifications to make sure things pass through countries and I'd have it on the other side. And so it's part of that. Uh, planning process goes into into that and seeing what what your mission will look like on the ground when you're physically there. That's a, a tough one for pre-deployment planning, then, isn't it? Because if you if you're flying commercial, what do you had uh, three foot lockers you're allowed to bring, and uh, at fifty pounds a piece, that's not a lot of equipment if you're setting up at clinic. No, it, it's it's really it's it's really not. It can be a it, it can be. <laughs> It can be changed. We can bring in more equipment. You know, the uh, the DPAA is, uh, which that's the uh, acronym of where we work for, is they're willing to make sure that we can, uh, you know, buy excess, excess badge, baggage fees and things like that and make sure that we can uh, make sure that we can get out there. Um, but you do have to be smart in how things pack and break down and, you know, traditionally we uh, we would lug around these big um, pelican cases. Well, that doesn't really work in this environment because you're not going to be able to fill it all the way, and and uh, you're, you're not going to be able to uh, really utilize that as you would with the the weight that the case has in itself. So we we have to, you know, be smart in how we do things and pack things and try to find a modular system over a uh, you know fixed rigid kind of system that should work for everything and on top of that you're bringing drugs so malaysia is an islamic country how are you able to bring in your ketamine and morphine into a country that makes that illegal yeah yeah so we we use diplomatic notes and um i reached out to um you know, we, we send up everything saying this is what we're bringing because this is what we need. And, and that does go to, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure who that goes to in Malaysia, probably the uh, the Ministry of Defense there and, and a few other people. But um, on, also on the same side, I, I would speak to our embassy and, hey, this, this is what I'm doing. I'm sure your team's tracking. I'm there. I don't know if you're tracking, though, that I bring in quite a robust kit you know narcotics being the the most worrisome uh you know second my fear of having a serious serious casualty in a you know country that's developing it, second to that would probably be be in jail in a you know country that's developing and so mm. 
want to avoid jail time or anything like that, you know, especially when, when you're not meaning to do anything, you know, nefarious, you're just trying to look, look out for your guys. But even all the, uh, you know, controlled substances that aren't necessarily narcotics, but, uh, antibiotics and things like that. A lot of that's not allowed in these, these countries, um, unless you're a physician bringing it over on prescription. And so even all that, and so I'll take my entire list I'll take my lot numbers, my expiration dates, my quantities. I will let them know the whole gambit. I don't try to hide anything. And then I send that up early enough where it gives them comfortable time to be able to say no or yes to things. Um, usually if if we are diligent and respectful, uh, they, most countries don't have an issue. I think there's only one country that kind of has an issue with us bringing stuff in and out. Um, and, and that's a developing relationship, and that that will have to be fixed outside of the medical realm. That will have to just be through through talks with leadership at that point. So you're going into to, uh, the, well, let's say Malaysia, the last one you went into. How did you set up your pace plan for treatment? Did you did you recce local hospitals as part of your pace plan to, to bring casualties in or were you looking to extract immediately into um, someplace out of the country? Yeah, great, great question. So uh, Malaysia being, you know, one of the, the, the more developed countries we go to, um, it, it changed. And I, I guess I can talk about between that and, and Laos about how I view my medical planning there. So Malaysia has some pretty decent hospitals there. Um, so I, I did a significant amount of, of research on those hospitals. And we worked through a few organizations too. And so we take their recommendations. And so I look at the recommendations of uh, – international SOS and a few other organizations and see if they've, have they been to those hospitals to do a survey, what that looks like, what the capabilities look like. Um, and so we, the, the path we took is we, we did a tour around the peninsula. I mean, we did a full 360 around it. And so it really became a moving target for me. And I had to find the ones that were close enough to where we were staying and, you know, what hospitals to go to, what, what not to go to. Um, and some, sometimes this is easy. Actually in the capital, there's a hospital that is, uh, you know, actually takes our, our military health insurance. You know, it's like, well, that's going to be an easy one there. You know, that's probably been vetted multiple times for that to, to happen. Uh, but some of these outliers, it gets a bit more difficult. And so we use those organizations and, we, we look at the hospital. You have to look at how you get to the hospital and then how you get out of the hospital because all those are new phases within treatment that you, you're you going to have to take care of. So while the hospital, the private hospitals in Malaysia are very good, um, there's, you know, good cases that come out of them. Many of the physicians are Western trained or had Western residencies. They're well stocked. They're clean. Uh, a few of them were actually uh, – jaco uh you know joint commission mm, yeah, uh yeah. approved and it was like okay well this is this is really nice um where malaysia had more difficulty is the pre-hospital care was is is nothing like on the west side it's still very much in its you know i don't even know if emphasis is is really the the best place to say it's probably akin to 
1960s United States pre-hospital mm. care at that point, kind of Before a scoop and go. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that really became a focus of treatment that I needed to uh, make sure that we were good for. And I needed to look at, uh, one, make sure all the hospitals, could they receive a patient 24-7 and what staff was there? Um, and then with my transport times, as we're moving, look at what my long legs of the transport were to make sure that I was prepared for my longest movements. And I always double that just out of out of caution. I double it because things things can go wrong. And uh, I just want to make sure that I, I have enough. You know, you have you think you're transporting and then you have car trouble. Or you know something of mm, the the sort, Murphy. and then uh, yeah. it makes everything you know a bit longer. And then I also look for I look for the um, the the post care out of the hospital. How do we get them from hospital to international airport to try to get them on a flight back? You know, and, and back maybe all they made it to was. Yeah, Korea, you know, or right. Japan or, or, or something or like Kinala. that. Yeah, it, yeah, it, exactly. One of those were robust medical system that could could handle whatever we bring them as a as a patient. But you know, so we we start to look at all that, and part of that looking into that is what is the reality of the diplomatic process of somebody leaving from an airfield that's usually not their main port of entry or exit. And what that's going to be. And uh, honestly, that's where like the embassy has to start getting uh, into into it also and, and kind of aiding you in, in some of those things. And, and some of the, the uh, evacuation companies can help with that too. Uh, depending on your country, it can be kind of how difficult that is. Mm-hmm. Now, Laos is quite a bit different. Uh, Laos, the only hospitals that really feel comfortable with is is in the capital city of Vientiane. And so for you to evac somebody, uh, this last trip, I was all the way down in the south of it. And I was not going to be allowed to cross any borders. Uh, So we were going to have to work our way all the way up, you know, the length of the country, Probably by driving, I had a helicopter, but it couldn't fly at night. And so, you know, around when dusk happened, that was it. You know, a a good run with that helicopter would probably be a four-hour flight. And so I told the guys, once once about three o'clock rolled down, we're going to be driving somewhere, um, you know, to be safer while we're on the work site at that point, essentially. Mm. Um, and so for them, there was also the facilities – uh, we just aren't quite as robust as we need. And what we can do is we'll go do site surveys to hospitals and try to d- develop our own reporting too internally. And we'll take what we can use from these hospitals. And it may be um, laboratory capabilities, x-ray capabilities, you know, lever- leverage what we can use that will at least give us better decision-making before we start a evacuation, you know, the evacuations, I know it's military, but, you know, everything has a price tag on it. And, uh, you know, it's the amount of money you can save off of, uh, you know, good clinical decision made, uh, making is, is pretty, pretty big and appreciated once you, once you do that appropriately. Indeed. And, and have the ability to 
make clinical judgments on do they need to exfil or not. So yep. uh, an ultrasound probe would be, what, do, you, do, you, do you carry one in country to help you make this decision? I do. I, I wasn't able to take one in Malaysia with me, but in my in my kit, I do. I carry a uh, ultrasound probe, and um, we, uh, you know, any, anything we can look at with ultrasound is is excellent. Even if you have to send pictures to people because you're not sure what you're looking at, um, it's much easier to. Uh, use uh, the local cellular network or internet and send a picture than it is to uh, try to try to figure out what something is with less diagnostic capability for sure. Hmm. It's always good to phone a friend. Mm, yeah, 100%. I, I always, I think the providers sometimes get uh, tired of me because I'll <laughs> fill them in on even the more basic things we have to make sure I'm not being silly with my medicine and that I'm not missing something important. So what medical ailments, what, what injuries are you seeing on these deployments? You know, most of them are, are what you would expect. The, the most common ones we deal with are, are traveler's diarrhea, or it, it may be a little bit more of, you know, a, a enteritis, you know, uh, sometimes something more dysenteric uh, will, will occur. Lots of musculoskeletal stuff. You know, the, the work sites on these, they're... Uh, more akin to a construction site than they are, you know, anything else. Um, lots of digging, lots of moving uh, materials, and people get worn out, you know, the, especially if, if you're not used to doing that, your your body has an adjustment period. And so that's that's pretty common. You deal with, you know, the more common ailments that we have here, headaches, you know, you know, people get the, you know, upper respiratory infections and things like that. Um, and so really, you know, the mundane, you know, is kind of what you see, the things that you are prepared to. And then then every now and then we get things that are a bit more exciting. Um, sometimes we do get, get injuries. Um, we had one of our guys was in uh, Papua New Guinea and had a interesting meningitis case. Um, hmm. You know, and so you can go from these, it's not deadly, to it's potentially very life-threatening um, very quickly. Uh, and sometimes they mask each other, you know, a simple headache with a bad examination, it just becomes a simple headache. And then with a good one, you, you start worrying about encephalitis or meningitis or, or something that's kind of presenting a little bit extra because you you went the extra mile to do a good examination, Um the I would say the most most interesting cases I had were I had a bubonic plague case with wow. a local national in Laos. Um, that was that was the most interesting I had there. Everything was other than that was really focused on GI. I had a big GI trip that time, mm-hmm. um, and then in Malaysia here I had an interesting. Um, anticholinergic toxicity where I was my own patient and then I had a uh, a urology patient with a with interesting presentation of of kidney stones and mm. um all, all those make you use your medical brain to the to the max and those they're fun when it's over you know you look back and it's like well that was good um but when you're in the moment you there's quite a few worries and um you know 
I don't know if self-doubt's the word, but there's there's doubt going on in your mind trying to figure out what you have, especially if your uh, telemedicine capabilities aren't quite the best. Indeed. Well, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about malaria, uh, dengue, other tropical diseases. Are, are these popping up as well? We we do, and I, I should have said that. You know, I guess uh, at this point when I say common things, uh, tropical medicine has become common to us. It's just part of part of the lifestyle at this point. Now, we do a pretty good job with prophylactic treatment. Um, the teams go out either on, uh, and forgive me, because I can never say the full, full the generic name of this, but Malarone is, is mm-hmm. what, what I prefer to put my team on, and it, or the possibility of people being on, on doxycycline, you know, one, one of those two. And so we do we do a lot of prep, a lot of preventative medicine with that stuff. You know, we make sure that everyone can take the meds and then, of course, on the way back to make sure that uh, everyone can take Primaquin. Uh, as long as their G6PD levels are are appropriate, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, we have good compliance with that. And I think that's a military thing in, in general. We've been taking uh, anti-malarials for 20 years at this point and and people really have it in their mind that you need to do it and if you're military there's there's repercussions if you didn't take it appropriately um so that's there for malaria but i'll say those those cases because of that are are rather rare and Mm -hmm. we use lots of bug spray uh if i can i'll even ship in uh these fogger sprays for the sites and try to you know, first light when we're out there, try to fog the area and at least, you know, keep the pest out as, as much as possible. And uh, with dengue, uh, being in Malaysia here, uh, Malaysia is actually having a, a dengue outbreak, which when we showed up was uh, about 3,200 cases a week in wow. the capital city of Kuala Lumpur. And they seem to be doing an amazing job as a country managing that. They're, they're fatality rate is extremely low and so they they know what they're doing out there um but i was you know still worried about my team because we spent about five days total there and so we did the permethrin treatment close we you know put buck spray on before we went out um you know if there were if we felt there were mosquitoes around perhaps we're eating and there's mosquitoes around you know, we just kind of cleared out, and uh, luckily we didn't have any any cases of of dengue uh, while we were there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's it's something that you you have to worry about. And uh, in our history, we, we've definitely had uh, people get dengue. I, I'm not tracking any who've become, you know, the critical stage stage two, but um, it, you know, nothing too serious. But I know the. Uh, one of my good friends, an archaeologist for us who had it, he said he never wants it again. So that was the, the worst <laughs> thing that he experienced while his, his time has been here for sure. And are you carrying RDTs for all of this as well? We do. We, we try to carry – the RDTs are for dengue are hard to get right now because mm. of the outbreaks that are happening within Southeast Asia. Um, if you're a U.S. Uh, you know, based entity, you have to get special approval to to get those or go buy them in country if they sell them available. Uh, but mm-hmm. I try to bring every RDT I can, every lab diagnostic capability uh, I can, I'll bring. We 
we use the the Bionax is the FDA approved for malaria. Um, I had to go to the embassy to get some dengue rapid tests. Um, we'll use influenza, COVID. If if it exists while we're out there, we will try to bring it with us because that makes mm. clinical decision making much easier when you have positive malaria. Well, you, you definitely know it's malaria at that point. Are you bringing microscopes and slide staining as well? No, that's that's where we that's where we start to to taper off at. And and truthfully, we have we have one special forces medic that's that's with us now and and he's he would be the most trained to be able to do that. And and I've done it, you know, in the in the master's program and um I've done it through the um through the Walter Reed Tropical Medicine and Global Health course. Nice. Uh, and you know, so I, I got to do quite a bit of reading there. But the amount of material that we would bring for that would be would be quite extensive. And so we choose that it's it's more prudent to bring more rapid tests than it is to bring a, a microscope and slides and you know, stains and, and all those sort of things. I agree. And and they are ninety five percent correct uh, on the RDTs. So you're not mm-hmm. wrong on that. Uh, the other other test I would think of would be a guaiac test for blood in the stool to determine dysentery. Do you do you have that option as well? We do. Yep. Guaiac, guaiac yeah. tests are are available for us, and uh, you know I I will bring those for for sure. I um, always trust the guys when they say that they they don't see any blood in there. I believe they don't see any blood in there, but for those persistent. Uh, or particularly bad diarrheas, or if they're presenting with a fever or, or anything like that, uh, sure enough, I'll, I'll get a guaiac, guaiac test on them. So musculoskeletal, like sprains, strains, back problems, a little bit of trop med, anything else of interest you're seeing? You know, I, I think that's that's probably the, the majority of, of what we see. Um, if, if we start to see anything else, it, it's more kind of rare and a lot of times it happens to do with uh chronic problems that they have um I, you know i've managed gout out there um oh. you know kind of, kind of one offs that that are out there um uh, but but you will see them you know and hmm. um and it will really start to test your you know your your medical skills there you know as a a paramedic you're not necessarily trained in <laughs> to be recognizing and treating gout and as a military medic usually our patient population a lot of them don't have gout um mm. i will say the one thing that we are we're definitely prepared for is all the the cardiac events the uh hypo or hyperglycemia um you know anything like that we we take a full Complement. I'll bring all the ACLS drugs I can possibly Good. bring, and I, I think you actually have a picture of my kit. And on my kit, if you uh, look on the back uh, lid of it when it's open, you'll see it clearly labeled with all my my cardiac meds on on the back there. And uh, and we'll, we'll bring AD at a minimum. If you're a bigger team, you'll actually you'll bring um, a monitor, you know, to to be able to to do a little bit more in-depth study on this. And, and sometimes it's, uh, you know, we're a bit more cautious because the age of some people we bring with us, uh, that's, that's happened quite a few times where we've, we bring, uh, the, they're fantastic trips in my opinion, but you bring people who were 
in the battle out with you. And, uh, you know, and they can be U.S. or they can be uh, from from another country and they can help you with your investigation skills. Uh, but at this point, with the the age of them, is there's expected to be quite a few, you know, medical problems with them at that point and so i'm especially cautious with with those that we that we bring and uh making sure that that i'm doing the best i can to provide them health care for what they have too at the same time yeah old man disease is, is getting a lot of us now so it's probably a good idea <laughs> it, to it happens focus you know? that. yeah so what's the longest case you had for prolonged field care that you sat on a on a person before you got complete medevac you know, um, I've not had to do a complete full medevac for for anyone out here. We've we've been pretty lucky for for me personally. Um, for you know, some of the other guys though, the menin- meningitis patient we had, it was it was a full forty eight hours um, for for them to be able to go, and that I was on the receiving of telemed for that, trying to work them through and coach them through on certain things there, at least the, the critical care aspects of it, um, mm-hmm. trying to make sure we had good communication while uh, another side of it was trying to was, was trying to work on the, the getting them out of country process, which sometimes is the more difficult process. Um, but, you know, I, I will say I had a, um, you know, this urology patient, this kidney stone patient that I had, you know, he, he wasn't a, you know, urgent evac or, or anything like that, but he did, I did have him for, for five days of, of rather questionable things where in the U.S. he would have gone to a, you know, the emergency room and, and to a urologist, you know, quickly. And so it's, you know, it's it's not the big evac that we we all expect of, somebody found a mine out there somebody has you know uh you know dengue hemorrhagic fever or something like that but it's still a prolonged field care question that you sit on that typically you would have handed this patient over quickly just going to the emergency room and that would have been you know the scope of your care is really just doing an assessment treating some pain and getting them to the emergency room where now I had to maintain a patient with kidney stones who were bordering a complicate, you know, complicated versus uncomplicated and trying to avoid them going to surgery at least until we got to the United States. That is a challenge. And how much pain management drugs do you have available for sitting on a patient for 48 hours? We have quite a bit. We, we do our, our calculations to make sure that we can handle what we do, you know, what we are going to face. And so we carry a couple grams of, of ketamine, you know, and a, a couple is, you know, really at least three grams of ketamine are with us. And we have, you know, opioids, we have uh, benzos with us. And then we, we also have kind of the, you know, Percocets. We, we start working to our lesser drugs, carrying a, uh, Ketorolac and all types of other NSAIDs and, and things like that. So we can, you know, we can augment pain pretty well for 48 hours. That's yeah. that's one thing I kind of refuse to work in is keeping somebody in pain for 48 hours. That would be a, a, a nightmare. So I, I make sure that 
that my uh, narcotics are pretty robust. Indeed. That sounds pretty amazing, uh, what you do for a day-to-day job. And it's a three-year stint, is it? It is. It's a three-year, and if if you really want to, you can always extend for a a fourth. We just had one of our Air Force medics uh, do that. He's a He's a great medic, fantastic clinician, and uh, we decided that we will, uh, you know, have him do uh, another year out here. And um, it, it is a great, great duty assignment. There's uh, dive missions that happen, so we have some people to go do dive medicine. We have a lot of, a lot of technical, uh, I'll call it technical recovery. I don't think if that's really, really probably used appropriately, but. You know, a lot of these sites we have cliffs and or it's on a, you know, 60 degree slope or, or something of the sort. And, you know, we're working on ropes while we're excavating. And um, mm. so the medics are very well trained. Multiple courses that guys go to. We use the uh, military mountain course out in uh, Vermont. And we do uh, go over to Bridgeport with the Marines, and we do stuff on island through a through a local company, and uh, we we train that quite a bit. Actually, that's uh, you know you want to talk about delay to care. Uh, don't don't have a good understanding of ropes when you're on a a ropes mission, and uh, you may delay care quite a bit. So we actually train twice a month as a as a team. We make sure that if you're here, you're going to train in in your basic rope skills. Yeah, definitely need to have those and, and make sure that uh, everyone's tied in. So, Zach, you who are currently going through our Masters of Austere Critical Care, and we met in Pretty Bay, Malta last winter. Yeah. Tell us uh, about tell us about the program and, and why did you take it and, and what are you learning? Yeah, so, you know, I had been looking for a program for quite a while. And when I say quite a while, I mean, I I was probably looking at programs for four to five years. And I was very disappointed in the U.S. for any postgraduate degrees. And and honestly, kind of even undergraduate degrees I was disappointed in. There's the point where for a paramedic, which is what I was kind of basing my basing my programs off of, is you you do kind of the, the basic paramedic program. And my hope is to to be able to find a program that weeds out the stuff I don't care about. You know, give me the the basic education I need in math and in English and those things, but focus me in medicine. That's that's what I want. I want to do medicine. I don't want to do all these other courses. I don't want to spend my money on them. I, I know I won't do as well in them because I don't care about them. I probably should, but you know, I don't. And so I'd looked for a long time in in the US for postgraduate there is there's nothing that does that for paramedics the the US they very much segregate degrees by what your career field is physicians do their mm. their postgraduate critical care course um and perhaps mid levels will will be in there with them or mid levels have their own um in Mid-levels by, uh, by PAs and nurse practitioners. I know they don't like the term of, of mid-level. I apologize if uh, that offends anyone there. Um, mm. And then nurses will have their own. In paramedics, there's really nothing that specializes you. And if you look at most of the degrees in the U.S., it's 
a lot of it's management. And I've had plenty of management uh, in my service career, and I don't feel like doing more management courses, uh, nor is that kind of what I want to do when I get out. And so when I came across your course, and I noticed that the European model is quite different. I mean, there's you go to a course, that they'll let you sign up for it as long as you have the undergrad to get into it. They, they don't care, and it's open to specialties, you know, uh, across the spectrum. And mm. I, I ran across yours and, uh, you know, or the, or the college's program. And, and really what, what got me about it is there's no extra courses in there. I mean, there, there's nothing. There's no, <laughs> there's no introduction course where, you know, you, you pay for an extra semester hour of something non-medical to introduce yourself to everyone. Um, mm. And so every, every course was, was a valuable course. And that was really one of the first programs I came across. And then it had this, this austere flavor to it. And it, it's such a undeveloped aspect within the U S of, you know, austere medical care. Uh, it, it almost just doesn't exist out here. The best thing you can do is take a tropical medicine course and they'll talk a little mm -hmm. bit about it. There's a few degrees where they've started to do like disaster medicine. But again, those are all for really for physicians as fellowships, um, not yeah. for, not for medics to, to jump in on. And so I saw this with the, the college and um, immediately I knew like that this is it. This is where, <laughs> this is where uh, I, I need to do school at, uh, you know, it, it, at that point, I think I'd emailed you and we talked and, uh, you guys, you you cared about you you cared about um, me learning, if, if that makes sense. Mm. Like you, you were interested in me as a student picking up skills and abilities, and you could tell that you you weren't just trying to make make a dime off of students. You know, some of these colleges feel like a a puppy mill where you go in. Uh, you you give them an arm and a leg, and then in three years later, you know you'll you'll walk out with a degree. And I, I never got that sense from from you guys at all. And uh, I appreciated that. And uh, I, I believe when we had that conversation, Paul was actually in the room overhearing it, and he's like, "I, I want to do it too," um, you know. And so he was <laughs> he was convinced on the spot also of of like, "Yeah, this is I, I want to do that also." It sounds phenomenal. So you're you're halfway through now. Yeah, I, well, I think I'm a little bit over over halfway through. I've uh, I'm in seven oh five right now, and the last bit after here is I have um, I got to remember. I think it's seven oh nine, which is for the the dissertation. Uh, you know the um, yep the research methods. Yep, research methods, yep. and then followed on by the by the dissertation. And so I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, we're, we're at the, at the end there, but it's been, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a great, great journey, uh, throughout this course. It's really, really been appreciated to, to go through and, uh, you know, the, the knowledge that I've gained has been, uh, appreciated by my peers and by other healthcare professionals. And actually, my, my PA, as we talk, you know, PAs in the U.S. are trained on family medicine. If you go through a course, it's family medicine focused. It, it doesn't matter. You get your master's as, uh, you know, in your, your 
pansy exam of what they call it here it's all focused on uh, family medicine and so mm. he you know he started to admit when i was calling him about my urology patient and just updating him he said look zach whatever you think is is appropriate here you do he's like at this point with your education he's like i look at you more as a peer than i do as as i'm you know over you and i'm going to tell you so he's like you tell me what you're feeling and you're probably right in it. And, you know, I can accredit that to to uh, being in, with the college for these past couple of years going through going wow. through courses for sure. That is fantastic. That's our goal as well. To yeah. Get yeah. you thinking at the master's level. So uh, you also came to Pretty Bay in Malta and we were showing the improvised womb vac. And I remember you came up with a novel way of detecting the pressure, the negative pressure in our improvised womb vac. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, and, and this is this is what I love about austere medicine is sometimes you get to MacGyver it, and uh, if you have a, a medical mind that also enjoys a little bit of problem solving, you get to uh, you get to problem solve in, in unique ways. And so, yeah, we were sitting there. Um, I know we had to talk about about wounds, and it was it was fairly in depth because a lot of you know, a lot of the class, if if you're civilian-based EMS, you, you, wounds are a very short-term problem for you. You kind of care, is it mm. bleeding or not? And then after that, you know, you're, you're kind of good with it. Um, so we went into depth with this and we talked about, you know, all the, uh, the, the debridements. We talked about, um, you know, keeping it clean and closure of the wound you know like what what methods were best for the environment we're in and we talked about like the the wound vac there and you know quickly you in an austere course when you talk about equipment questions get raised you know of like well, am i going to have a you know you know wound vac kit with me is that going to be be likely and so you know you're like no but here's some things we're looking at and so i had a good uh you know, I, I took extra extra time on the side. Uh, I think we were we were dealing with something more I was familiar with, and so you kind of let me go off on the side and, and develop a uh, try to develop how I could monitor what pressure we're putting into the wound, and so using a uh, blood pressure, um, not the the cuff, but the bulb itself, some tubing, and creating a. Uh, creating a, a loop with fluid in it and able to look at changes of positive pressure and negative pressure should have been the same. And so able to, to, you know, somewhat accurately, I'm not going to say perfectly accurately, but to be able to predict what uh, pressure or negative pressure you were putting on a wound. And that was, that was a fun um, exercise for, uh, for me to do. I really enjoyed that one. That is a fascination of austere medicine, isn't it? That you have to think, outside the box absolutely that it it's a problem within a problem set is how i is how i tell people that's the the best way i can describe it of especially to physicians who know what to do you know uh, we we've taken critical care physicians infectious disease physicians and i'm preparing they'll say well what what should i be ready for well, you're going to have a problem, but you you as a physician, you're probably going to know what to do uh, if you were here in the United States. The problem is, is you're not in the United States, so 
you have this problem within the problem, and the problem may be diagnostic limitations or equipment limitations or medication limitations, but now you have this problem within the problem, so you get to problem solve. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, if, if anything, it's my favorite piece within austere medicine. And it's interesting teaching this because I hope I'm learning more I think I am. I am learning more from the students who are going through the the austere critical care classroom session in Pretty Bay and just seeing how they come up with solutions to the problems we're throwing them. And, and I mean, there are 16 scenarios during that week and you guys have to come up with ways to deal with these casualties and austere, the, the critical casualties and austere environments. And it's a learning experience for, I've been doing this 35 years and I'm still learning. And, and I think the day I stop learning, I'll, I'll quit. But it, your class was really interesting just to see how you approached each of these 16 scenarios. Yeah, the, the scenarios are, are, they're wonderful scenarios. I've been, uh, you know, as a special operations medic, we've, we've tried to create uh prolonged field care scenarios and you know the the start of that the really the genesis of I, I think more of the the big mainline push you know prolonged field care.org and things like that came out of my community um, but the the ones that the college does are are spot on to get you thinking too they're good scenarios without easy uh, easy solutions to them and uh, they they were fun to work through. They were very, very different. And even the ones where, you know, you're like, oh, okay, I've seen something like this. There's always a twist in austere medicine. There, there just always is. And, and your scenario is always brought in a twist where you're like, okay, I, I didn't see that coming in here. So what do we, what do we got to do here? So if you're, especially if you're, if you're, not familiar with the austere environment, if you, you just don't have a ton of practice, those scenarios are, are phenomenal. I, I would say invaluable to get your mind starting to think of how this is going to look and present itself and what your mind needs to be ready to do and start changing of um, of preparedness and what you're thinking and you know possibilities of of what what can occur and so i, I really enjoyed those you guys did a, a very good job getting those set up and and uh presented to us and and throwing us those curveballs in there for sure it was a, a group effort of having well dr chubba is our chair of critical care and he kind of reviews these and makes sure that they're we're not going off on deep end and throwing you uh wazoo things but it's um you have to basically having good 17 good faculty members that are making this happen. So, Zach, what advice, my, my last question for you, mate, is, is what is, advice would you have for someone starting out on a career in austere medicine? Oh, good. Good. Yeah, good question there. Uh, I think a few things. I think the the most basic thing I would say is your basics have to be spot on. I mean, they've got to be good. There's there's no progressing past the bad fundamentals of medicine because uh, you will chase your tail the entire time. So be be good at whatever your level is. Those fundamentals need to be down pat, 
and I recommend doing your, you know, your pre-research of where you want to go or what you want to do and double check that you're not missing any of those fundamentals within there. So fundamentals have to be, have to be down pat. Uh, and then two, I would say that if you're, if you're trying to come into the, to this community, um, you need to start looking at the areas you're you're uncomfortable with and becoming becoming comfortable with them so after those basics of you know basic wound management basic uh bleeding control things like that you know now you have to you're going to move into a longer term uh and and that's not commonly done within our segmented healthcare system you know you a nurse has their portion, a provider has their portion, pre-hospital has their portion, lab has theirs. Well, now you, you expand significantly to all roles are done by one role. Even if you have telemedicine there, nobody's there to give the IV but you. And so if you're a physician and you don't give IVs, those things have to be done, you know, particularly well. If um, you're not used to diagnosing and creating a differential or anything like that it, it, those are now on you and so you need to be prepared to uh to deal with that side of medicine which you, which you may not have dealt with before um and, and then lastly i'll just say uh you know uh the the education of it is you're there's no way you will know everything that you need to do um you are going to constantly be focused uh, with problem or faced with problems that are going to be from one specialty and then you'll get another problem and that would be a whole nother specialty who would deal with that. And so the, the learning that you do just needs to be constant. Um, and I think that's what I appreciate about the college is they lay a great foundation for that. Uh, but you you have to constantly be digesting information and trying to figure out um, how to shore up your deficiencies that you have within within medicine and and learning and whether it's reading articles or sometimes it's simple as watching uh, YouTube videos you know and seeing how somebody it could be you know a more simple thing is h- how do you cut an epipen to get the rest of the doses out of there. Um, mm. But that constant constant set of learning, and those who constantly learn um, are on a new wavelength. Uh, they, they just are quickly, they outpace their peers, and they're much more ready. Even if they didn't particularly train for one area, just the cross-knowledge, they, they always do better. And I had a senior medic who was with me on a resuscitation team, and he did this. He read a, a journal article at night, and he was a phenomenal medic, probably the best special operations medic that I had worked with in my career. And so I learned that from him immediately uh, and tried to uh, discipline myself to be able to do that. I still probably don't meet his standards with it, but uh, you know, I, I think if, if you want to do that, that's, that's probably where I would start with. Know the basics well. Yeah. Yeah, the basics well. If, if one thing, you got to know those basics well, for sure. Zach, it's been fantastic uh, chatting with you for an hour, and I have been looking forward to this for, for quite a bit. And thank you for taking the time, and thank you for being part of the college. Yeah, absolutely. Um, happy to happy to do the podcast and happy to share uh, share my knowledge. I know I have a kind of an interesting background with this, and we're we're happy to talk about 
what we do. And uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to be part of the school, too. I appreciate uh, everything and all, all the professors there. It's, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful experience, and I, I appreciate that. This has been a presentation from the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine. If you would like to earn CPD credits for this podcast, you can join the Council of Members. Being a member of the college gives you free CPD credit, free access to our virtual field guide, and discounts on our e-learning courses. You can join the team on our college website at quorum.edu.mt.